All right. Good morning, women of strength. We are so excited to be here with you today, as we always are. I think every guest that we have brings this like different kind of excitement with them. And today we have Nicole with us, who is amazing in like 360 degrees, just like all around. We were just chit chatting with her before we started the episode today. And she is an incredible, incredible, incredible woman. And I cannot wait to share all of those interesting details and information about her with you. But before we do that, Megan's going to read a review of the week for us. Okay, so this is from Homeclaw90. It says, I listen every single day after traumatic cesarean with my first baby five years ago and multiple miscarriages in between. It's a breath of fresh air as I await my chance to have a back this October with my second. Love every story I hear on this podcast, and it makes me feel so much stronger knowing that I can do this. And that was put in last July. So that means last October she would have had her baby. So Home Claw 90, if you are still listening, shoot us a message. We would love to know how things ended up. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for the review. You know, we always love them and they are near and dear to our hearts. You are tuned in to the VBAC Link podcast with Julie Frankham and Megan Heaton, VBAC moms, doulas, and educators here to help you get inspired for birth after having a C-section. Together, they have created a robust VBAC preparation course along with this uplifting podcast for women who are preparing for their VBAC. Although these episodes are VBAC specific, they encourage all expectant moms to listen and educate themselves on how to avoid a cesarean from the get-go. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It is not meant to replace advice from any other qualified medical professional. Here are your hosts, Julie and Megan. We are so excited today to have Nicole with us. And Nicole is really exciting. I was just, I just pulled up her bio. We have a form that we have our guests fill out before they come on our show so that we know a little bit about them. And like, the more I read about Nicole, the more I'm just like, oh my gosh, I need to know more about this. I need to know more about this. I need to know more about this. <laughs> and like the first thing that caught my attention was she is a social media content creator and she has a really awesome Instagram page called Polished Playhouse. It's all one word, Polished Playhouse. You can find the link to that in our bio. We're going to drop it there for you. Um, so you can go give her a follow, but she she, oh my gosh, there's so many amazing things. She creates um, like curated boxes for children, like ages three to five years old with like books and all sorts of educational things in, in it for, for your kids, for your toddlers. And I'm sitting here, I'm like, all right, I need to order the, I need to order these boxes. I need to sign up for the subscription box when it comes out, because there's some really amazing things. And the thing that really stuck out to me the most is she's including things with like diverse backgrounds and diverse cultures. So her, her books have black children in them as the main characters. And uh, she's a black woman living in Mer in Maryland. And I really kind of want to, I'm excited to talk to her because I want to talk about black birth in America and how the bias influences how people of color are treated in the birth space. And we, we can talk about numbers all day, how black women are three, two to three times more likely to have a cesarean and three to four times more likely to die in childbirth just due to race. Guys, this is straight across the board. It is not influenced by socioeconomic status, education levels, 
income, any part of the country, like there is this bias against people that exist in the birth room. And I'm really excited that we're going to talk about that today. And one of the things that Nicole said is that having a black provider to support her in a VBAC was very important for her because of that bias that exists. And so I'm excited that we're going to be able to hear about it from somebody who's who's lived through it, who's living through it, and who has come out the other side having uh, hopefully, I'm making some assumptions now, hopefully having a very supportive experience for mm -hmm. her. And so I'm just going to sit here and geek out over her on her Instagram page while she's sharing her story. But she is incredible. And I just can't wait to hear from her. And so instead of keep talking about it, I'm just going <laughs> to go ahead and turn the time over to her so that you can hear am amazing Nicole's VBAC story. Great. Thank you so much for that generous and kind um, introduction. I was a member of you all's Facebook group and then also listened to the podcast all the time. So a huge honor to be on your show today. Oh, thanks. Um, as you mentioned, I'm Nicole. I have two sons now. I have one who's four years old and then I have the second one who is seven months. I um, had my first son in 2000. 16 and then had the second one in 2020. And for my first son, I started care with a gynecologist that I had seen since college in the DC area. We had a pretty good relationship. So when I got pregnant, I just decided I would continue on with her. I had a pretty healthy pregnancy. It was, wasn't any issues that came up. I was doing prenatal swim classes, did a lot of walking. I was able to manage my diet pretty well. Didn't have any challenges. Um, the doctor that I was going to, she was she was very cautious. So at the time, I had like a number of different tests that she was running on me, and she never told me why. Just just a lot of different things that I wish I would have asked about um, that I didn't. Just being a first time mom, I didn't know to ask. But one of the things that I did ask her when she was a very popular doctor in this area. So sometimes we would go, uh, my husband and I would go to appointments and it would be, the waiting room would be like standing room only. So there was usually space for all of the pregnant people to sit, but if you had a partner with you, they would likely have to stand. So one of the things I asked her is, you know, if you're not able to deliver my baby, then what happens? And she just kind of brushed it off and she's like, Oh, well, that never happened. <laughs> and looking back, there was no way, like physically, that she could have delivered all of the babies. Um, so that just was something that was always kind of lingering for me. If she wasn't able to be there, what would support look like? So the night that I went into labor, I went walking, I was bouncing on a ball, and I started having contractions. I went and sat into, I sat in the bathtub. I didn't wake my husband up. Usually if I was having kind of like Braxton Hicks contractions, I'd go sit in the bathtub, they'd go away. These did not go away. So I started to feel like, well, maybe this is it. So I woke him up and he freaked out and he's like, oh my gosh, the contractions are too close. We have to go. We lived about 40 minutes away from the hospital. And I chose that hospital simply because it's where my doctor delivered. I didn't know to do any research into the cesarean rate or anything like that. 
So the hospital was about 40 minutes away. We got into the car. My mom was staying with us at that time as well. And at this time, it is clear I am in like full on labor. We roll the windows down. My husband is like barreling down the highway trying to get me to the hospital. We get there. As soon as I get into triage, like I come off the elevator, I get there, my water breaks. I go, I get back. And one of the nurses asks one of the other nurses um, to check me and they check. And she she quickly starts calling to, for them to send me back. And then one of the other nurses said, well, how far along is she? And I saw her mouth to the other one to say seven. So once I got to the hospital, water broke immediately. I was at seven centimeters. They took me back and my husband had just kind of left our car in the middle of the hospital driveway. So he had to go back and move the car. And when he went to move the car, I saw my doctor for the first and only time throughout the entire my entire stay at the hospital. And she came in and she said, you know, I know you're at seven centimeters, but that was the easy part. I really suggest you get um, an epidural so that you can calm down so that you won't be in pain. And leading up to that point, I had really wanted a natural birth, but she, I was, I was obviously in a lot of pain, but she also really kind of pushed the epidural in a way, like looking back in a way where I wish I would have kind of pushed back. My husband is down moving the car, so I'm in there by myself. And I'm just like, okay, I want this epidural. So I get the epidural. It took it took over an hour for them to get it. I, they poked me several times. They just couldn't get it right. So once they finally got it in, I took like a really brief nap. And then they woke me up and told me it was time to push. So I pushed and pushed and pushed. The nurses were <laughs> the nurses. They, they were somewhat supportive now that I've had a new experience. I really know what a, a really supportive team looks like. But I ended up trying to push my son out for two, about two hours. He never went into distress. I I was exhausted, but he, he was fine the entire time. So as I'm pushing, I'm starting to feel really discouraged. I don't feel like I'm making any progress. My sister was there. And they kept telling me, well, we can see his hair. So we think he's close. We can see his hair. We can see his hair. A doctor comes in that I'd never, never, ever met before. I'd never seen before. And he tells me, he, he walks into the room. He's like, puts his hand down. He looks and he says, you're not going to get this baby out. We need to have a C-section. He didn't say anything else. He didn't introduce himself. And my husband said, well, I need to talk oh to you gosh. outside. Yes. <laughs> Came. He, he, I, the only reason I even like can remember what he even looks like is because my sister has a picture of him. He didn't tell us his wow. name, nothing. He's like, he's, there's no way you'll get this baby out. You, you need to have a C-section. So at this point, I'm just like hysterical crying. My husband goes out yeah. and talks to him. He told my husband that my son was just too big. It's no way he was going to get out if it was a risk of him being paralyzed and just all of these things. So cried and cried and cried and then agreed to the C-section. We went back, I went back and first I had to go back alone and I just remember like shaking so bad and I couldn't tell if I was shaking because of the medicine or because I was afraid or, or what. So finally my husband came back, they let my husband come in and then had the C-section he was nine pounds, so he was a big boy. So he was a big boy, but it, it just 
we didn't get any information aside from the fact that like he's too big you won't be able to push him out you have to mm. have a c-section so afterwards i talk like when i tell this story I, I i talk a lot about the parts that where i was separated from my husband because i think that's where i felt like least supported because i didn't have him there yeah he's they your voice yes they separated me from my husband and i went i went into a separate room and they were checking me doing all of these things afterwards and my husband was with they let my husband go with the doctor and the baby and then a nurse came and i heard her talking to the doctor the doctor that had to, that delivered my son and she said but she's allergic to this and i heard him say it's fine and the nurse said it again no but she is allergic to this and he said again in like this very direct tone to her she's fine <sighs> and all what happened was they gave me something that i was allergic to and i broke out after i had my son i broke out in hives all over my body oh my and gosh. i was i was literally digging into my skin and I'm, people say, oh, well, after you have the epidural, you will itch. And I'm just like, no, this is not, <laughs> I've never had a baby, but I can't imagine you were supposed to itch like this. So mm. they just kept giving me like allergy medicine after the fact. And then they put an allergy bracelet on me. This was after I had already had the C-section, after they had already, after I heard the nurse tell the doctor twice that I was allergic, they put an allergy bracelet on me. And then, like, after that, I see pictures of myself and I'm, like, so tired. It's because I'm literally just, like, pumped full of allergy medicine because I had this horrible reaction. So after that, we had a, a decent stay in the hospital. Didn't really have any complications from the C-section. But one thing that always stood out to me even now is I never until I went to my follow-up appointment I never saw my doctor again I never heard from her again her shift ended while I was having my son and I literally never saw or heard from her again until wow. I went to the appointment I went to the appointment ahead of the appointment she sent a review from her office so she wanted a review and so I think it was out of four stars and I was very generous and gave her three um, just because I felt like she abandoned me. Yeah. Um, and the entire appointment, my first six week checkup after my C-section, all we talked about was why I gave her three stars instead of no. four. No. She no, never really? asked. Yes, yes. Oh my she gosh. She never asked how I was doing. She never asked anything about the baby. She was just so hurt, upset that I gave her three stars instead of four. Wow. So needless to say, I I didn't go back there. You should have gone I, back and changed your review to one star. Yes. <laughs> That's what I would have done. I know. Yes. Oh, oh my gosh. Um, so I just, and I didn't, because I had such a, I had a really positive healing experience. I didn't have any complications. I really was just like, oh, well, I'm one of the lucky ones. This is okay. But not thinking about until much later did I start to think about just the so like the emotional impact of having the birth that I wanted be changed in such a, just in really such a, an insensitive way. So when we started thinking about having a second baby, I knew that obviously I was not going back to her. 
I had started researching about feedback, started listening to you all's podcast, joined the Facebook group, and I really started looking for a provider. I learned a lot about maternal, Black maternal health, which I didn't know before. Learned a lot about biases and, and a lot of it just not being listened to, not being heard for Black women it mirrored my experience. Yeah, so I absolutely. really wanted to have a Black provider. So I found found out that I was pregnant in October, well, late October of 2019. And I found um, we had moved, we lived in DC when I had my first son and we had moved to Maryland right outside of DC. And I found a practice, all midwives, two of the midwives, there were only four, it was a small practice, two of them were black and then two were white, but they were really, they were really, really experienced. And it was really what I had from what everything I read, it was a really pro VBAC practice. So I went there for care. I had a completely different experience just from the very beginning. I never felt like I was, was my first doctor. I always felt like I was like very sick with them. I never felt like I was sick. They were just so positive. They just kept reassuring me, you can do this. We think you can do it. We know you can do it. Never did any type of VBAC calculator, anything like that. They were just really positive. So I was going there. I went there all the way through March. So up until I was about 20 weeks, went there, had such a positive experience, always left really happy. March 11th last year, I went for my 20 week scan. Um, this was right when COVID was, it was just starting. There was just starting to be talks of like, this is a thing, <laughs> this, this might change everything for us. Um, so I went at the 20 week, it was one of the appointments where they were just starting to kind of limit people who could go into offices. So we went 20 week scan, everything was great. The next day is when, we got an email from the email from work from my job that we were going 100% remote. That's when my son's daycare closed. All happened in that same week. And then I was home on my very first day of remote work and I got an email from the midwives that said, we are so sorry, but after 20 years, we just cannot continue the practice. It's just not financially viable for us. So oh we will gosh. be closing. <laughs> This is so we, much all at once. Yes. Yes. Oh my gosh. So it was, it was the day every, like the world shut down and I'm sitting here like, well, this is the new normal. I work from home. My son is here. And they sent an email and they said, this is it. So they would be doing births through May and my due date was July. So I had to, and I could stay on with them until May or I could switch then. So I was just completely devastated because I had grown so fond of all of the midwives, I had met with all of them. So they, I knew there was another practice in, this, in the same area. So I just thought midwives, people have positive births with midwives. So if, I'll just switch to that one. So I continued to get care from them up until, up until around the time that they closed, but I had been researching where I would go. So, they closed. I went to my last appointment with them. And at that time, I started really looking into also getting a doula. The hospital where I was would be delivering had in 
maybe April or May when COVID was really bad. They said no additional support people. So I could not, at that time, I couldn't have a doula. I would only be able to have virtual support. So I was bummed about that. So I'm looking for the pos- looking into the possibility of not being able to have a doula or having a virtual doula and then also finding someone completely new to deliver my baby. So I went to one appointment at the new practice. This was again, the only appointment that I had my entire pregnancy where my husband was not allowed to, to come with me. So I went to this, this practice, I went in and immediately it was, I don't know, the energy of the place, it just, it just did not feel right for me. So I went in, I was sitting, I was waiting. And then midwife came in and she said, I need to, I need to do this calculator on you. And I heard about the calculator, heard about a lot of the limitations, a lot of biases that are built into the calculator. Yes. She, again, this is someone who did not introduce herself to me. She didn't ask me anything about my- All she wanted was the number. She wanted the calculator and she did the calculator and the calculator said that I had 30% 30 chance of a successful vaginal birth. And she's like, you know, I mean, I can let you try, but just look at this. Your chances are not good. I'm telling you now. And she said in like a very matter of fact way, well, like, I mean, what, what have you been doing with yourself? And at this, I was so sick during my first Wait, wait a minute. She said, what have you been doing with yourself? Yes. (laughs) She said, because, because I had the big baby before that there was a chance that I would have another big baby. And she, she linked big baby essentially to me eating too much. Oh so my gosh. Like, yes. At this and this point, is a midwife. Was, yeah. And this a was white, May. Is it my, so, a white midwife? Yes. This I think this is May. kind of where bias is coming into play yeah. as well. Yeah. For sure. Mm-hmm. Sorry, she, I'm, I'm going to let you keep telling your story. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> she made a lot. She just made a lot of assumptions. And at that point, I had literally gained nine pounds. Because I was so I I was so sick during my first trimester, I didn't gain a lot of weight at all. And even with my son, who was nine pounds, I gained twenty seven pounds for my entire for my entire pregnancy. And then for my entire pregnancy with my son, I gained twenty seven pounds, and he he ended up still being a nine pound baby. That's still a so she t- average weight gain. Mm-hmm. So she ended up. She asked me, you know, well, what have you been doing with yourself? I'm like, well, I've been walking. I have not you know, been eating horribly. Um, I haven't gained a lot of weight. She said, well, I'm telling you now, um, you'll have to get a weight. You'll have to get a a weight scan um, close to your due date. And at that point, we'll decide whether or not we can do, we can, we can try for the VBAC. She said, but based on this calculator, I don't think you have a good chance. And she told me that they had been having, I said, well, you know, I've heard that the, the calculator is inaccurate. And she said, well, we've been having some conversations at the hospital about it, but we still think it's the best tool. So I said, okay. Um, I left there. I literally held myself together just to get to the car. And I was so frustrated. I called my husband. I'm like, this is not it. I'm not doing this with them. So we have to find someone else. And this was right in the middle of the height, like the worst of COVID. So a lot of places were not seeing people in person. They were doing a lot of telehealth visits, especially for someone as far along as me. So I I didn't know what to do. Um, so with the first 
practice where I was, I had to go to an OBGYN to get to get essentially cleared for the VBAC. And the one that I went to, I really liked her. So I, I decided that I would transfer to, to them. I'm like, okay, I'll just move on from midwives and I'll transfer to this OBGYN. And she was also a black woman. So I started the process of transferring to that practice. And I looked online at the reviews and the reviews were either a one star or a five star. So then I looked further and the practice actually was about 30 doctors. So you, and you, you didn't get to decide. It was like whoever was on call. So that reminded me a lot of my first birth where it was just this doctor that I had never met that I didn't have a relationship with. So I quickly got over going, going there. I got over that and I had no idea, like, what am I going to do? So my husband has a really good friend that is a doula, that was a doula, she's taking a break right now. And he called her and she told us of the hospital that where I ended up delivering in DC. And she said, if you wanna have a VBAC, this is in this area, that's where you have the very best chance. So the, the um, midwife practice in DC, they have, they're very, very popular. They have like all of these rules you have to follow. There's like a specific diet and they have different groups um, that meet. So I just was convinced it was so late. I was about 32 weeks at this point that it was so late. It's the middle of COVID. There's no way they, they will let me, <laughs> let me join. So they wouldn't let me make an appointment with the midwives, but they did let me make an appointment with the OBs. So I went and I saw the first I saw the first OB. I was very nervous. I'm, I'm 32 weeks at this point. Like, this is my last shot. So we went, she came in and she's like, well, have to asking me about the birth. And she's like, yeah, I see that the first baby was really big. And I just was like, oh my gosh, here we go again. And she's like, well, that really shouldn't hinder you. So I just was like, oh my goodness. <laughs> I think what a I relief found my to people. hear. <laughs> yes, I think I found my people. Yes. So she she was really great, um, and, and that was a white provider. She was really great, and she's like, well, I don't think that'll be a hindrance. We deliver 12, 10, 11-pound babies here all the time. So she gave me, obviously gave me the risk for the uterine, scar tearing, all of those things, but just in, in a very informative way, but still very supportive and saying, we think you can do this. So because they made my initial appointment with the OBs, I just was convinced like, okay, this is it. I have to go to the OBs. So at about, I went to another appointment. I met another one in the OBs. She was also great. And then about 35, I think it was 35 weeks, that hospital in particular said, we will allow doula support again. And I was seeing a, a massage therapist, a prenatal massage therapist, and she had been watching the hospital's like updates for me really closely. And she texted me in the middle of the night, like, you can have doulas again at the hospital. So make sure you find one. So at this point, I needed a doula like within a week's notice. So I went on Instagram, <laughs> was reading, scrolling, looking for a doula. I found one doula, a woman of color that I reached out to, I sent her an email and I'm like, I know it's completely late. I'll be delivering here. I'm having this feedback. Please, will you take me? And she said, well, you know, I really don't 
come to your, I really don't come to that part of Maryland, really don't come to your, but I come to your area, but can I think about it? And then I'll let you know. So we had a quick chat and like later she told me she just was making sure like filling me out. We had a quick chat and then we signed a contract and she was my doula at about 36 weeks. I met her in person only one time. And she suggested to me, she said, I know you've had these two appointments with the OBs and you feel comfortable with them, but I really think you should switch to the midwives. And I'm like, I'm 36 weeks. There's no way they'll let me do this. So when I went to an appointment at about 36 or 37 weeks, I asked one of the OBs, I said, do you think they would let me switch to the midwives? And she said, I don't know. We, we really don't do transfers this late, but I'll ask. So she sent an email to the midwives and, and she said, we have a mom here who really wants to be seen by a midwife. Um, she's a VBAC. She, she seems like a good candidate. Like, please, will you do this for her? She really wants it. And for some reason they said yes. <laughs> um, I went to an appointment at 38 weeks. I went to my last appointment with them and my very first appointment with the midwives, I was 38 weeks. I think it was a Tuesday and I met a midwife, a black midwife that I had heard that I heard about. Everybody talked about how she how amazing she was. And she's just this fierce advocate for black birthing people. And she's just amazing. And so my first and only appointment with the midwives was with her. And I told my, and it was just so great. And I'm like, yeah, they did the calculator on me. And she's like, oh no, we don't use that calculator. And she talked yeah. so bad about it. <laughs> and that's I'm what like, I did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's like, we don't do that and blah, blah, blah. So I told my husband, I'm like, oh, I really hope she, like, we just get the luck of the draw. It was six, I think six or eight midwives. And I'm like, this, this is it, this is it. I really, really want her. I think I'll have a great experience with her. So I went home. Praying, this I want this midwife to deliver my baby. So I went into, I started having contractions the very next day after I met her, and I'm like, I don't think this is it. So I actually went, I went, did some shopping. I went to FedEx to <laughs> mail some packages, and my contractions started really picking up. So I text my doula, and she's like, Well, if they get a little closer. Let me know, but I think you. I think this might be it. So you should go home, take a nap, lay down. I laid down for a little bit, and the contractions just kept picking up, kept picking up, and I knew like this is it. So my husband called the doula. She said, "I won't make it to your house. Just hurry and go to the hospital." So on the way to the hospital, I had to like roll the windows down, get air. We were playing meditation on the Bluetooth in the car. We get to the hospital and. I say all the time, literally every good person that was available in DC was there at that moment in that time from the, the guy who just like literally let us leave our car in the middle of the street and was asking if I needed a wheelchair, if I needed anything. <laughs> My doula was literally standing right there as soon as we got there. We went up. And at this point, like, I am in full on labor. <laughs> I'm trying to practice my breathing, doing everything. I get checked in. As I'm getting checked in, they say, can you call the midwife who's on um, call? And then one of the nurses said to the other one, well, which one is it? And she said the name of the midwife that I had met literally just hours before, this black midwife that I, mm -hmm. I told my husband, I'm like, that's her. She's going to deliver the baby. And she was on call. 
But at this point, I am bawling because I just cannot believe that all of this has worked out in this way. So she comes back, she checks me, and I was nine centimeters. So they had to give me a COVID test. They gave me the COVID <laughs> test. I didn't even get the results. Yeah, they I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> they took me right. They took me right back. My husband went down to move the car, and I'm like, oh, no, this is deja vu. This is what happened last time. But I had a doula with me. And she was there and she was advocating for me. And, and I didn't honestly didn't even need any advocacy at that point because they were just like so great. So I'm like, I don't know what's happening. I think I have to push. And I remember the nurse said, well, push just so casually. So I was sitting there and I'm like, OK, maybe I will try to push or just try to breathe into it. My doula talked to me through some breathing. I was on my back. They called the midwife. They said, you have to come in here. We think this. That we think this baby is coming. My husband got back right just in time. I am literally still fully clothed. I did three. They they at one at one point I was on all fours and they, and I heard the midwife say, "Okay, his heart rate is dropping." And I said, "Oh no!" And they they all like slapped me back into reality. They're like, "No, you turn over and you push this baby out." So I turned over. I did three massive pushes and he came flying out with this perfectly round head, which is the first thing I noticed about him and a head full of hair. And mm -hmm. I just could not believe it. And my doula was able to get a really great video of it. And I said, did I do it? And they all said, yes, 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 you did it. You did it. And it was just such a, an amazing experience. The way everything worked out, just the support from all of the nurses, it was such a, a healing, liberating, amazing, amazing experience. At no point did I ever feel like I would need a second cesarean. They didn't even mention it. They just were, they, everyone was just committed to helping me have the feedback that I really wanted. So it was, I did, I was able to do skin to skin with him right away, which I wasn't able to do um, the first time. I had such a different healing experience. It, it was just a really, really great experience for us. That's amazing. I think like, oh, if everybody would feel so supported mm -hmm. in their labor, like you went through a lot of negativity mm -hmm. until you found your people. Like you said, mm -hmm. these are my people. And to feel so supported during your labor and, and to feel and to, to know the midwife that was going to be delivering your baby that had to be so like such a weight off of your shoulders, like that alone probably shifted in your entire feeling going into the hospital. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, it was such a great experience. And we, we came, the midwife after I had been with, she had to leave really quickly because someone else was having a baby. But when she came back in, I just kept thanking her over and over. And she was telling me, no, you did it. You did it. And I just kept thanking her over and over because I just felt so grateful um, that she was there and that she listened to me. And, and, and I'm just forever grateful to her. That's amazing. There's so many things I want to talk about. Holy cow, we just don't have time to talk about it. First of all, the VBAC calculator is awful. Let's just yes. talk for like two minutes about the VBAC calculator. And then I want to get into like some current legislation to improve maternal health outcomes for, mm -hmm. um, for everybody, but specific with a specific focus on reducing the mortality rates for black people and minority populations. But the VBAC mm -hmm. calculator, we actually created a, a bit.ly for it. So if you go to bit dot ly slash vbac calc so that's v b a c 
C-A-L-C. It'll bring up the VBAC calculator and put in all your information and calculate it and you'll get a percentage, right? And first of all, if you're preparing for a VBAC, this calculator is not evidence-based. ACOG discourages mm -hmm. even using it. And you're predicted, if you have a predicted success chance of less than 60%, it doesn't really mean anything. Like my first client ever as a doula, like my very first client was a VBAC and she was an Islander and her VBAC success uh, calculator told her she had a 4% chance, like oh a four, F-O-U-R. She pushed her baby out in 20 minutes, guys. Like mm -hmm. she totally mm -hmm. nailed it, right? And so don't let that number like discourage you. But what I want you to do is go in there, put in your information and calculate your number and then change your ethnicity, yep. change it from white <laughs> to black and calculate mm -hmm. it. Just change that, only that one thing. And when you input black as your race, it drops your chances by like 20% roughly. Yep. It's mm -hmm. always right exactly. around 20%. I did Just because you're black. <laughs> yep, I did that. And I had about a 30% chance when I was black. I didn't change anything else, my weight, my height, anything. And when I took out black, it went up to um, low 50%. Yep, yeah. it went up a little bit over 20%. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And my VBAC, just for comparison, so my VBAC calculator was... 62% was for my first VBAC. And then when I changed it to black, it, it dropped it down to 48%. Mm -hmm. And now that I'm, I have a way higher BMI, when I calculate it now, and keep in mind, I've had three VBACs. It, dropped, it takes me being white to 42.7%. And when I'm black, it drops me down to the mid 20s. Mm -hmm. And that the, the VBAC calculator is based on like a, a sample size of 7,000 people. And they just tried to use all of this data to collect to, to tell uh, what kind of chances people could have. It's like, try, you know, because healthcare, they love data. They love to see the numbers. Mm -hmm. They like to know what's going on. They like to predict things. But what they didn't consider in that calculator is the bias that comes in the birth room for Black women specifically, because our Black parents are dying at three to four times higher rates than white women of the same, mm -hmm. like, Socioeconomic, socioeconomic status, education level, income level in same parts of the country. And Hispanic people are dying at twice the rate. And so mm -hmm. we have this big health care disparity. But, oh my gosh, it's so hard because we, we know, and I think I'm so grateful for the last year, like COVID is, has totally sucked, but I think that there's been a lot of good things come about, like lots of stirrings and lots of, lots of noise and, and, and mm -hmm. riots and challenges and things come up where where black voices are being amplified and we're hearing them more in our healthcare mm -hmm. system. We are hearing them more, and I think that that's a really good thing. But if you're um, just some white doula from Utah, like I am, like what are we supposed to do? Like how can we influence the mm -hmm. healthcare disparity in our local communities? And I have an answer. Something that you can do if you want. And I don't know, um, Nicole, have you heard of the Momnibus legislation? No. Mm -mm. So, um, look into that. yeah. So representative Underwood is a black female representative in, in Congress and she introduced the Momnibus act. So it's spelled just like it sounds M O M N I B U S. And it's designed to address 
the overall, like we're, we are one of the greatest nations in the world, but we have one of the highest maternal mortality rates. And that's really sad. But what is even more sad is the disparity of those mortality rates between white people and people of color and black people are like in a separate class. It's e they're even more likely to have cesareans and more likely to die during childbirth. And so this act addresses the overall maternal health care system and improving it and decreasing that overall maternal mortality rate, but also decreasing the bias that exists in our healthcare system. And I'm just mm -hmm. going to go over, you can just Google Momnibus Act. They introduced it in 2020. They're making some changes to it and they're introducing it again in 2021. And I mean, lots of good changes have started to be implemented in 2020 just coming from this, but the bill has tw 12 key points in it. And I'm going to try and just go through these super quick. But the first one is um, make critical investments in social determinants of health um, that influence maternal health outcomes. So like housing, access to health care, right? Transportation and nutrition. Mm -hmm. um, provide funding to community-based organizations. So community health care in underserved populations, community-based maternal health care, rather. They are studying the risks facing pregnant and postpartum veterans, which I'm a veteran. Um, I served in the military for five years. And so I think that's actually a really cool thing that they put in this bill in addition to everything else. But they want to put efforts and money into diversifying the perinatal workforce because, Nicole, you said it was really important to you to have a Black provider to reduce mm -hmm. the risk of bias against you. So this bill has a goal to increase the number of, of Black providers and providers of other color that we have access to in our, in our healthcare system, because that's another part of the problem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, data collection processes so we can better understand the maternal health care prices, crisis, um, support moms with maternal mental health, because that's a big thing as well. It, uh, improve mental health care and support for incarcerated moms. Um, invest in digital tools to help monitor mater maternal men maternal health overall. It has lots of other things. I'm not going to keep going on, but what it, one of the things I really like is that it talks in here about educating providers about these biases that exist in their space, because I know that a lot of the time we're not aware of our own inherent biases, yep. you know, that exist around us. Mm -hmm. and, and I think as white people, it's easy to kind of brush off, oh, well, I'm not racist. I don't treat black people any differently than I treat white people. But then doing that kind of dismisses the idea, like it takes you, even if that's true, right? It closes you off to seeing what other things you might be doing or what other things exist in our healthcare system that mm -hmm. are biases against people of color. And so I think that's kind of like a big thing for me right now is just being more aware. I've had, I know me and Megan have both had clients, like Asian, sad Asian clients. My, my gosh, my biggest one I had was a Hispanic client and man, there was such a bias against her. I can't even tell you yeah. the amount of crap we had to deal with in the birth room. And this is just here in Utah. And so we've seen and experienced it ourselves. But I think when you say this is not a problem because I'm not a problem, really closes you off to helping fix the problem. So what I want you to do right now, if you're listening and you want to help change this big 
gap in maternal health care for black women and other women of color is I want you to go look up your local state representatives and Senate members and send them an email or just Google Momnibus Utah or Momnibus in your state because each state can even has um, their own uh, ways of introducing this. I know, well, I know Utah, maybe not all the states do, but they're, but most of the states have their own versions of the Momnibus Act that they're integrating at the state level as well. Google your state representatives, Google your state and Momnibus Act, and send a letter to your representative, to your local legislator, and tell them that you support this, that this is important to you, and you want them to vote to move this forward and start implementing this across our country. Because that is the biggest way to get things to change from the top is letting your state representatives know that this is a big issue for you. When they hear the voice of the people that vote for them, that's the biggest way to get them to change things. Even get a community petition started or something to where you can bring this up to your local leaders in our country, but also focus on your state as well. Cause there's, gosh, I wish I had the information in front of me. There's ways to reach out and, I don't know, there's somebody here in Utah that was in charge of introducing like a Utah version of the Momnibus Act. And I, gosh, it's just missing from my brain right now, the information, but giving feedback to your, to our leaders, giving feedback to our leaders is what's really, really important. And then being aware, don't say, Hey, I'm not a problem because I don't treat black people differently. You say, Hey, this is a problem let me be more aware of it and just observe and even observing and being more aware of the actual problems and, and how, what they look like is going to help you be more cognizant of things you can do to help change it. And then and then as birthing people, stand up for yourself, change providers, find your voice. I know that it's, it's not as easy as I just make it sound. It's easy for me to say that, right? But getting educated about your options, knowing like you knew, Nicole, that the VBAC calculator is crap. It's just crap. But you knew that. Mm -hmm. But somebody that doesn't know that and doesn't know that it's bias against black people is going to say, oh my gosh, I only have a 30% chance of success. Maybe I just shouldn't do this at all. And mm -hmm. then they have a cesarean, which increases your chance of maternal death anyways, a very small amount. But then, I mean, it's just huge escalation. So being aware of the racial disparity in our healthcare system and then observing it and seeing what it looks like practically in your local area and then speaking up and emailing your state of representatives and your state government leaders about the Momnibus Act are things that you can do like right now, like today in order mm -hmm. to help improve this change and being aware of it and stepping up for people. Like if you witness people of color, whether you're white, black, Asian, Hispanic, whatever your ethnicity or background or color is, speak up. If you're if you're witnessing this, if you're seeing this happen in the birth room, speak up and say, wait, this is wrong. Regardless of what, I guess it could be just like, regardless of whether it's due to race or, or not, but you should always speak up if you see somebody being mistreated in the birth room, but also don't be afraid to file a complaint against mm -hmm. the hospital or against the mm -hmm. provider. Because that's another thing that's just going to bring more awareness of what is going on in our local communities. So I feel like I've been just talking for a really long time. Nicole, what would you add to that? <laughs> I think everything that you said is, is important, but I really want just Black women, women of color to know, like, it's okay for you to advocate for yourself. And it can be very tiring and very exhausting on top on 
top of what um, should be a very happy and positive experience. But don't be afraid to advocate for yourself and don't be afraid to switch providers. If you get a feel, if you go see someone and you get a feeling just in your interaction with them that you will not be, you will not have a positive experience with them, don't be afraid to switch. I switched three times in the middle of the pandemic and it was honestly the best decision that I ever made. I would also suggest having the support if you can get support um, from a doula or a partner or a trusted family member. So you always have someone else there to give voice to what you're saying, what your needs are, what you're experiencing. Um, but just just really advocate for yourself and, and don't be afraid. Don't think you're being too much or you're asking too many questions or you're being too aggressive. Like this is your life. It's the life of you. It's the life of your baby. And just advocate for yourself and don't be afraid to do that. Absolutely. I think that's so, so, so important. I love that you switch providers twice. I've had clients and, and no, no, we've had several people on our podcast, switch providers until they find the right fit. And if somebody is ever treating you wrong, you have the right to leave providers, go to a different birthing location, even if it's in the middle of your labor. I know that sounds really hard mm -hmm. and scary, but pe people have done it. It's been done. Mm -hmm. All right, Nicole, yeah. thank you so much for being on our podcast today. Like, I'm seriously like fangirling over here on your Instagram. I love your subscription boxes. I'm seriously like, we're going to be doing something with, I think, like our monthly subscription. I want to get my hands on these diverse <laughs> books for my kids. I really do. It's a, it's a really important thing for me. And so I'm, I'm happy that we found you and that we connected and that you shared your story. And especially for allowing us to, talk more about the healthcare disparity uh, with black people in our country. So thank you. Thank you for spending thank that you. time with us today. Thank you yeah, so much for having so me. Much. Thank you. Would you like to be a guest on the podcast? Head over to the vbacklink.com slash share and submit your story. For more information on all things VBAC, including online and in-person VBAC classes, the VBAC blog, and Julie and Megan's bios, head over to the vbacklink.com. Congratulations on starting your journey of learning and discovery with the VBAC link.